considerable portion of the ground is now covered with a fine old forest of native growth, the verdure and shade of which originally suggested the name of Greenwood. Shade, ruralness, natural beauty, everything in short, in contrast with the glare, set form, fixed rule, and fashion of the city. It was with these words that David Bates Douglas, the designer of Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, described the overall feeling of the landscape. Anyone who's ever visited a cemetery knows that there are particular aspects that we look for, but most often it's the fact that there is an open, park-like, and overall natural beauty to cemeteries. But if we take that to the next level and we start to consider cemeteries not just as cemeteries, but as green spaces. They start to bring up a whole level of different topics, things like conservation, preservation, and biodiversity. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So this is a topic that, I confess, if I were to list out the most requested topics that I get, notes about. Green Cemeteries is definitely one of them, and I know I will tackle it at some point. Um, Last spring, I briefly touched on Green Cemeteries when I was considering listener-submitted questions, but overall, I confess, it's one of those topics that I actually find very intimidating because there's a lot of different levels to it. There is a technology piece to it. There is you know, the consideration of what's wrong with the funeral industry. And a lot of green burial has less to do with cemetery design as it does with materials and funeral practices, which it's not that I never talk about them. It's just I'm more interested in cemeteries themselves. And in terms of planning, because green burial is still pretty new, there's a lot that I think that is still being figured out about green cemeteries. So, like I said, it's not that I will never cover it. It's just I find the topic very intimidating. It's something that I feel like I definitely need to talk to experts about. And I think that, unfortunately, where I live, green cemeteries are not yet the norm. They're definitely moving in that direction. I say all of this to preface kind of how I got to this topic. And this is something that, as far back as I can remember, when I was making lists of topics, this was definitely something I wanted to talk about. And it's the idea of cemeteries as nature preserves, arboretums, places of extreme biodiversity, and just overall green space. Why now? Well, I actually came around and decided to do this topic this week because the topic came up because I posted a picture of a groundhog in a cemetery this week because it was Groundhog Day. And... Lisa Sisko, who I know from my days back in Savannah, uh, she worked at the city archives, the municipal archives there. She now lives in Pittsburgh. It commented that groundhogs are everywhere there. And then I happened to bring up, well, when I lived in Philadelphia, there also were a lot. And we joked around, well, that's why Puxatawney Phil lives in Pennsylvania. But it got me thinking. Um, The picture I posted was actually from Homewood Cemetery in Pittsburgh, which was sort of a fun accidental surprise. I did not originally have it on my list when I went to Pittsburgh. And I was 
I confess, looking for Mr. Rogers' house. So uh, I went to see Mr. Rogers' house, and Homewood is probably less than you know a mile from where Mr. Rogers lived. And I happened to pass it, and I happened to pass the gates, and being of a taphophilic disposition, I turned in and happily spent the next several hours roaming and I had zero expectations. I didn't have any plan. And I, I very thoroughly enjoyed the experience, but I was astounded. And if you know Pittsburgh at all, it's located close to where the Frick is. It's in a pretty rural area, all things considered for a metro area. Incredible biodiversity. I probably saw 25 or 30 deer when I was there. I saw a bunch of groundhogs. I saw wild turkeys. And this is nothing new. If you're someone, and I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably someone who spends quite a bit of time in cemeteries, particularly urban cemeteries, this is not unusual. Obviously, if you live in the country, you probably see wild animals all the time. But I think back to when I lived in Philadelphia. I lived just outside the city limits of Philadelphia in the village of Drexel Hill, which is in Upper Darby Township. I lived about two blocks from Arlington Cemetery, not that Arlington Cemetery, Um, and the amount of animals that lived in that cemetery. Now, keep in mind, this is close to Philadelphia, but this is still like neighborhoods, but the area of the cemetery had foxes, it had coyotes, obviously the smaller animals like groundhogs, rabbits, things like that. And I will tell you, I saw some of the largest foxes I've ever seen in my life. I used to walk there almost every day. And these were some giant, like, Game of Thrones-sized foxes. And that, to me, means that the eating in the cemetery must have been pretty good. But also that the surrounding area was becoming so overgrown and so populated in the suburbs that this was one of the few places that these animals had to hang out. And from what I observed, you know, all of the surrounding cemeteries kind of in the same area. So St. Peter's and Paul Cemetery, the big Catholic cemetery that was over on like the Springfield Broomall line. Like if you, I know I have some listeners in the Philadelphia area. Um, Holy Cross Cemetery, like all of the cemeteries in that area, whenever I went in them, I would observe similar amounts of animals. Maybe not as many as I used to see in Arlington, but... When I started to do the research for this episode, what I found was that this is very common. And I was able to find scientific studies, which are not done from necessarily the cemetery's point of view, but rather from the ecological side of things. One of which looked at 97 different studies, which were done on cemeteries on five different continents. And essentially it compiled the data And I'm going to try to narrow it down a little bit because there's a lot of data that comes from cemeteries in Europe, cemeteries in other countries, and this is primarily an American cemeteries podcast, so I'm going to focus more on American cemeteries today. But what they found was that because cemeteries were, A, large pieces of relatively undeveloped land, B, remained undisturbed from different types of development and from deforestation and things like that. And lastly, tended to have a low road density, both inside and directly around it. 
So this could be because it was up against another feature, like say a water feature, whether it's a river or something like that. Or it tended to be surrounded just by less roads. Um, Obviously, this is not true for things like, say, Calvary, which is basically bisected by the the BQE. Um, You know, so there, there are exceptions to this. But because of all of those things, urban cemeteries in particular are places of incredible biodiversity. And this is something that, you know, from the ecological side of things, you may or may not know this, but I taught upper level math and science for most of my career. For 12 years, I taught math and science because that's what they needed. People always assume I taught history. I taught history one year out of the 12 because guess what? They never need history teachers. They always need math and science teachers. So I spent a lot more time teaching honors geometry and biology and chemistry than I ever did history. And so from the biodiversity side of things, we tend to think about the big level animals. But in reality, the things that actually plague cemeteries, the things that we all hate and we use our D2 to get rid of, things like lichens and moss, um, larger things like, you know, macro fungi, ferns, all of these things thrive in cemeteries to the point that there are literally hundreds of species living in them. Mainly because while certain cemeteries, so I'm thinking like more like the perpetual care memorial park style cemeteries, you know, are just absolutely blitzed with chemicals to keep the lawns really green, particularly older cemeteries aren't. And that allows for the growth and the diversification of different types of species. To the point where you actually have cemeteries that are more diverse than any other type of area around them. So I'll give you an example. I was reading um, a story that NPR published about 10 years ago, and they were talking about particularly in the Midwest. Now, the Midwest, being the breadbasket of America, is very highly cultivated because the land is cleared and plowed and it is planted with things that we need, whether it's wheat or corn or other things. And as a result, native plants often go to the wayside. Cemeteries, because they are not being cultivated, often retain certain plant species that have been almost completely eradicated other places. And this particular NPR article was talking about certain types of prairie grasses, which they described, you know, when Lewis and Clark came through, you know, 200 years ago, basically covered the Great Plains. These native grass species were taken out and almost completely obliterated so that those same fields could be planted with things that are profitable and are cash crops. Today, one of the few places that you can still find them is in cemeteries because that was one of the few areas that was not cleared for growth. So we don't tend to think of biodiversity in terms of things like grass. I mean, most of us look at grass and it's grass is grass is grass. And this is actually really striking to me because I've been doing a lot of research on grass recently in relation to cemeteries for purposes of erosion control, for 
you know, no-mo varieties and things like that. And I had automatically been like, yeah, let's get a no-mo variety and have it sent from the Midwest. And now I think about it now where I'm like, okay, could this now be an invasive species? Because this is not a native grass species that is grown in Atlanta. And so suddenly this research has actually opened up a lot of other questions about the things that we grow in cemeteries and about how invasive species start off. Um, I recently was talking to a landscape architect who was looking at a cemetery and was saying, well, that's not native, that's not native, that's not native. And it's interesting because we tend to think of plants as always having been there. When in reality, so much of even the natural environment around us is constructed. Now, this comes more sharply into contrast with particularly urban cemeteries, because often the places that they are located are close to ports of entry. So Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, I'm going to be talking a lot about today, because if you do searches about biodiversity, about protected landscapes, Greenwood is almost always going to come up. And there's a couple of reasons for this. So first of all, because of where it is located. It's not too far from, you know, the Gowanus Bay section of Brooklyn. So as a result, a lot of invasive species come in on ships, whether in ballast water with the cargo on ships. So certainly Greenwood has been affected by invasive species just because of its proximity to a port of call. And the same could be said of the majority of cemeteries that are located in and around rivers. But Greenwood in Brooklyn also is interesting because it is a certified arboretum. It has few surviving examples of, say, things like Dutch elms, which I'm sure most people know. You know, Dutch elms were almost completely wiped out in the United States by Dutch elm disease. Um, You know, this invasive attack on these native elms to the point where between 1920 and 1945 almost all of them were wiped out so you can get invasive species but invasive species aren't always harmful and let's put it this way I learned a lot about plant species and the importance of cemeteries both on the good and bad end so I'm going to look at a couple of different things today so first of all I want to look at the type of species that actually live in cemeteries And they're incredibly diverse. Like I already kind of touched upon, a lot of them are things that we don't normally see as being species. So these are not big furry mammals. These are not things like deer or turkeys. These are things that are far smaller. Things like lichens. Um, Lichens are a biosymbiotic relationship between a fungus and a plant. They are a lot of things that are going to be Again, not visible to the eye or very small. Things like skinks and newts. These are going to be far more numerous than the really big ones. Things like skunks and raccoons and foxes and deer and all of the big things. That's not to say that the big things also aren't incredibly biodiverse in cemeteries. One thing I have to say I was just completely taken aback at was bird species. Bird species are incredibly common in cemeteries because cemeteries provide such a biodiversity in terms of bushes, trees, water features like lakes, all of them in very close proximity. So you can have a lot of different species living in them. 
um, I was actually really astounded at just how many of them can exist. Um, particularly in winter. Apparently, cemeteries offer, like, the winter protection. So, I was looking at Greenwood. Again, there's a lot of data on Greenwood, um, so it will keep coming up. They know 163 different species of birds, 40 of them in winter alone. And I think it's because the sheer size of a lot of these cemeteries, you know, Greenwood itself is... I think 468 acres, it's almost 500 acres. The sheer scale of it means that it can support these species when they might not be able to survive in a smaller environment like even a, a tiny park. You know, Greenwood is 478 acres and has close to 7,000 trees. So that can serve a much wider population of different species, even in the wintertime when a lot of those you know, particularly deciduous trees, lose their leaves and things like that. It's, it's almost difficult to separate out the history of cemeteries from the history of conservation, from the history of biodiversity. If you go all the way back to the history of Mount Auburn, and I know it's probably been a while since I will remind you, but the Massachusetts Horticultural Society was one of the major partners with Jacob Bigelow in actually creating Mount Auburn. So the quote that I started with, the quote about the planning of Greenwood, you have to keep in mind the fact that the rural cemetery movement, in moving cemeteries outside of cities, in returning cemeteries to nature, in embracing the natural landscape as it was, remember, you know, Mount Auburn takes its name from Sweet Auburn and this sort of idyllic pastoral landscape that was enjoyed by the students at Harvard who would go out there kind of to loll about in nature. This idea of embracing the natural landscape is already in and of itself the idea of conservation. Because keep in mind, this was a pushback against urbanization, against the rapid gobbling up of land in urban centers as the Industrial Revolution occurs, as cities are growing. What they are doing is they are taking land on the outskirts of the city and setting it aside to keep that pastoral landscape. And if you remember correctly, a lot of this has to do with not just urbanization, but also, you know, romanticism in terms of literature, in terms of art, in terms of the overall ideas that people had. This is something that was reflected in the literature of the time. It was something that was reflected in the art. Most importantly, it was something that was reflected in the spiritualism, where the way that people saw death was completely different. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the Massachusetts Horticultural Society was involved in the founding of this, that immediately these things become tourist attractions because at the time, natural wonders and an appreciation for the natural landscape was really, really popular. Greenwood in Brooklyn was second only to Niagara Falls, which was the most popular tourist destination in New York. The fact that people were looking at, you know, these rock caves and waterfalls and these natural features as being really attractive shows this sort of like cult of naturalism that was fighting against 
rapid urbanization during the Industrial Revolution. It makes perfect sense. And this continued use of cemeteries as green space is really in touch with the original value system behind the rural cemetery movement. Now, even though this doesn't necessarily always continue, there is a a definite feeling of importance. So, for example, at Mount Auburn, in 1870, they actually developed a commission on birds. And this is not surprising because I don't know if you realize this, but there was actually a bird species that was founded at Mount Auburn. So the olive-sided flycatcher, otherwise known as Contrapus quapri, was actually founded by John Bethune, who was a minister. He he has quite a, a history. I don't know why he was hanging out at Mount Auburn looking at birds, but he supposedly in 1830, the land that would become Mount Auburn is where he discovered the olive-sided flycatcher, which to me, an uneducated unbirder type person looks exactly like a lot of other small brown birds um like I can remember vaguely when I was a kid we had a bird feeder outside the dining room window and like it looks a lot like a tufted titmouse I'm sure somebody who actually knows about birds would make this distinction I don't know that much about birds I I honestly don't care that much about birds but Apparently, this is now a slightly endangered bird, mainly because of the loss of their habitat in winters. So I hope that the olive-sided flycatcher can continue to thrive in said cemeteries um, because it is apparently important that it should. Um, okay, that, that's going to be the end of me talking about birds for a while because this is not bird talk with Liz Clappen, and I clearly don't, don't know jack about birds. But anyways... Early on, people already were embracing this idea that you could bird watch and you could commune with nature to the point that the trustees of the cemetery actually formed a board to be the commission on birds. Now, it's interesting because I also have read extreme examples um, up in Toronto in particular. Apparently, bird watchers were getting to be such a problem at the cemetery that they actually had to lay down some ground rules. Like, they were taking sticks and using them to beat, like, roosting trees to try to lure out owls in particular. Apparently, owls, which are sometimes seen as a symbol of death, like, are always associated with cemeteries. There's a good reason for this. Trees in cemeteries are far less policed than trees, again, I read a whole scientific study on this, than trees in parks. So parks tend to be a lot more aggressive with their trees, whereas cemeteries do not. So owls like hollowed out trees that have, you know, these kind of like rotten burrows in them, and that's where owls really like to live. I have a vivid image as a kid. If you ever saw um, The Secret of Nim, that was where the great horned owl lived. And she goes to see him in like this hollowed out tree. It's exactly where owls love to live. And so because trees and cemeteries are often allowed to kind of rot and die more naturally on their own, you have a much higher incidence of owls living in them. And apparently these bird watchers were trying to, you know, like use sticks to beat the tree so that the owl would come out and they could take pictures of it. And people complained about not just this, but the fact that they were also using 
corn kernels and different types of bird seed and scattering them on the cemetery plots and on the headstones to try to lure more birds out. And the cemetery officials kind of had to like put their feet down and be like, yeah, like we're fine if you bird watch, but you can't like actually disturb the people coming to visit their loved ones graves because that's a little extreme. And if you do research, for example, the Audubon Society has guidelines on good cemetery etiquette for bird watching. So this is something that I love because it's a direct tie-in to the original intent of rural cemeteries. Starts in the 1830s, people are doing it then, people are still doing it today. Now, this idea of finding species is not something that goes away either. So much so that in 2017, the internet blew up in so much as the internet can blow up about cemeteries because this happens again where there is a discovery of a new species at Greenwood in Brooklyn. Now, because of the sheer diversity of Greenwood, I already mentioned that there are about 7,000 trees at Greenwood, 700 different species um, between kind of shrubbery and trees. What they discover in 2017 is that the U.S. Forestry Service is on location in the cemetery doing research. And this gentleman by the name of Mark F. Girolamo actually discovers a new type of beetle. It is a jewel beetle about four millimeters long. It is from the Agrilis genus, um, which has about 3,000 different species in it. Um, They know that it is within this genus, but they don't identify it yet. It is noted as species 9895. I also saw it listed as 9898. It's listed as both in different sources, so I'm going to go with 9895 because I saw it listed as that more. And they noted that it has some similarities to the emerald ash borer, which is apparently terrible and really hurts trees. But it's not exactly the same. They don't actually know if this is harmful to different trees or not. They studied it for basically two years, and apparently the... I kid you not, you can find articles on this. The reason that they immediately knew that this was a new, never-before-seen species was this thing is hung. And by hung, I mean it has very large, abnormally large genitalia for a beetle. Now, I do not pretend to be an expert on beetle genitalia, but... They showed like side-by-side comparisons to other beetles in some of these pictures. And this is some impressive looking junk on these male beetles. Wonders never cease. Nature is amazing. But anyways, so this was like a pretty big deal. And they they did theorize it, it maybe could have come from Asia, again, being so close to ports. But this is something that's still happening. And it's possible that you know, this species shows up in New York or in the New York metro area, the only place that it could really thrive would be in a place that has such a level of biodiversity as Greenwood in Brooklyn. This is probably a good time to talk about the actual distinctions that we see of cemeteries. So there are kind of like two different major distinctions that I saw. The first of which is the term of a arboretum. 
So arboretums are actually really interesting on a number of different levels. There are four levels, level one, two, three, and four of acknowledged arboretums. Now, these different levels essentially have like distinctions about like what criteria you need to meet. Level one being the lowest, it has just like a few things you need to meet. To get to level four, you need a lot. So yes, I actually went through and counted. So at the level one, there are 27 cemeteries that are level one arboretums. When you get up to level two, there are 13. By the time you get to level three, there are only four cemeteries that meet the criteria. By the time you get to level four, there are none. So obviously, the ones you would expect meet the level three criteria. Greenwood is one of them. Spring Grove in Cincinnati is the other. Mount Auburn. And then last, but probably not least, Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C., and there are lots of others, like, so for example, the, the Grove Street Burial Ground in New Haven is, you know, a level one. Basically, the smaller cemeteries tend to fall into the that 27 level one arboretums, mainly because by the time you get up to the very top, there are just a ton of criteria, and it's very difficult for almost any organization to meet. The ones that tend to be on the level four tend to be more like research-based institutions, things like universities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like you can only meet that level if you have a lot of money, a lot of funding, and a lot of resources behind you. So for example, the baseline criteria for a level one Arboretum is that you have to have a Arboretum plan like a written plan, an organizational or governance group, you have to have at least 25 labeled tree and woody plant taxa present. It has to be a volunteer or paid support staff. You have to have public access in at least one event per year. And that's it. And then further up, you go into, like, you have to have a conservation governance plan, a global trees campaign, collections conservation, an agenda for tree science, planting, and conservation. So that's why it tends to be more the research-based organizations that get to that level up. Now, the other thing that cemeteries can be is a certified wildlife habitat. So looking into this, this seems like a slightly shadier so it says, anyone can create a welcoming haven for local wildlife, turning your yard, balcony, container garden, schoolyard, work landscape, or roadside green space into a certified wildlife habitat is fun, easy, and can make a lasting difference for wildlife. And it basically, so you have to have certification requirements. Certified wildlife habitat applicants are asked to confirm that they've provided the required number of elements for each of the following. Food, water, cover, places to raise young, and sustainable practices. And so then you can, like, click through each of them. I don't know. Like I said, this seems a little bit more wooly, but, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to prove that you have these. So what food sources do I need to certify? And it says seeds from a plant, berries, nectar, foliage, twigs, nuts, fruits, sap, pollen, suet, bird feeder, squirrel feeder, hummingbird feeder, or butterfly feeder. You need to have three of those. 
so it seems like pretty much if you have a plant, you can provide most of those. A flowering plant, even better. Um, so I think it's pretty easy for a cemetery to actually become a certified wildlife habitat because apparently you can have like an herb garden on your balcony and it will do the same thing. Um, the Arboretum certainly is a level up. Um, that being said, I see a lot of cemeteries that call themselves Arboretums without being certified Arboretums. In fact, pretty much every cemetery I feel like has kind of done that. And I think that they are qualifying that based on the fact that they have, you know, X amount of trees of X different species. And really, I mean, I think if you have ever looked at any cemetery after a really bad storm and you look at damage to trees and you consider tree cover, and this is something that I had actually, I've actually talked about with, you know, a number of different cemetery professionals because as cemeteries get older, you know, trees have a certain lifespan. And as that lifespan starts to expire, you have to start to consider replanting. And this is something I particularly saw in British cemeteries is something that they're considering, obviously, because things are much, much older over there. So for example, the beautiful burial ground project, which was extending between May of 2018 and May of 2022, is looking to catalog different species and consider, you know, replanting things. And I mentioned invasive species earlier. This is a particular push where they're trying to get people to replant native species because native species, in terms of biodiversity, better support the existing population. And I think that's where you really need to think about cemeteries in terms of being like a food chain. So, for example, you know, oak trees are really important because they provide what's known as mast. Mast is acorns. And so acorns are a food source for such a wide variety of different species that having those trees there not only provides a habitat for things like birds, but also a food source for other species. And, you know, the more small mammals, things like, say, rabbits, that you have that provides food for larger mammals like coyotes, foxes, etc., etc. It's all very much linked. I think all of us expect to see things like rabbits and, you know, groundhogs and squirrels in cemeteries. But we don't necessarily expect to see other types of species, and we don't think about how small things like lizards and snakes, et cetera, et cetera, can feed larger populations. So when we talk about biodiversity, it's a long chain that kind of gets up to that point. And obviously having these certifications, it probably helps in terms of trying to seek out you know, connections with different research institutions. So, for example, I saw a lot of different notes about different universities that use cemeteries as really beneficial locations for studying biodiversity, for studying success or failure of a particular area. Um, So, Bellefontaine Cemetery in St. Louis was one example that the University of Missouri in St. Louis was doing overnight studies to look at certain nocturnal species because cemeteries provided a great location. So, for example, they talked a lot about bat species and nighttime moth species. 
and cemeteries because obviously they're not getting as much foot traffic at night and they're not in use at night was a great place that they could study these species because they set up these like big nets to catch the bats which they were saying like even in a public park you can't necessarily set those up at night but in a cemetery you can so it's one of those things I didn't think about too is that cemeteries provide a really unique opportunity for research and to study situations because you can control a lot of things you know you can even control when the mowing happens and when treatment for certain you know like I know one of my coworkers. he used to work as an itinerant archaeologist back in the day you would just get a daily stipend if it was you know 50 or 60 bucks this was back in the 90s and he said that they would just take the money and they would camp out so that way they could use the money for other things like say alcohol and drugs Um, and they always used to try to camp in cemeteries because they knew that cemeteries treated for fire ants, so it was a lot safer to camp there than someplace else where you would have to deal with pests. Again, not something that most people would think about, but it's smart in retrospect. Likewise, in terms of trying to study things, like this group that found the beetle at Greenwood, they are able to look at a much larger collection of biodiversity. So New York City is always a really good example, or any of these kind of city cemeteries are a good example because a lot more studies have been done. You might not know this, but in 2015, there was actually a huge movement to try to, first of all, map all of the trees in New York, which they did. And so just for like kind of you know, comparison's sake, if you look at the neighborhood that Greenwood is in, this particular project mapped 3,088 trees in the surrounding neighborhood. When you compare that to the fact that there's over 7,000 trees right in Greenwood, one thing you will notice about these studies is that if you look at the cemeteries themselves, there are no trees mapped in them because they didn't even bother to try to do that because the volume of trees in cemeteries is just so much higher than the surrounding neighborhoods, particularly in an urban area. So the fact that in a very concentrated location, which Greenwood is probably a bad example because it's not super concentrated, it's almost 500 acres, But the fact that compared to the entire neighborhood as a whole, it has twice as many trees in just that one section really says a lot. Now, this is something that I wanted to look at because I was kind of curious. You know, if you are looking at urban areas, how much does tree cover matter when you compare it to the overall section? So I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I did a lot of math here, because I tried to find statistics. They just aren't great. There's a lot of contradictory information, and the fact is we don't necessarily know how many trees there are in cities. We can do estimates using tools like Google Earth and, you know, tree counts, but Trees are always being planted. They're dying. The whole question was that kind of started this was there was this big push to try to plant a million trees in New York. And they were asking, like, do we really need to plant a million trees? Because we don't know how many trees we have to start off with. And so I read a lot of studies. Apparently, Tampa is the U.S. city that has the most tree cover. But it's kind of wishy-washy, like, how these studies are done, like, how they're estimating To me, in my mind, I'm like, well, Tampa isn't at all palm trees, which I know it's not. I know there are plenty of deciduous trees in Florida, too, but 
to me, like, is it just trees in general? Is it any kind of tree? Like, is there a difference between certain types of trees? Are there preferred trees? Like, there are a lot of questions I had. So I decided to look at New York, just because above all else, there's just way more data about New York than any place else. Now, this is where things start to get difficult, because the question is, like, what do we consider New York? So I decided, because if you look at New York Metro, like the way it's defined, the New York metropolitan area is enormous. It takes into account basically the whole Hudson River Valley. It takes into account basically half of New Jersey. You can basically call everything up to Philadelphia the New York metro area. That was a little overwhelming. I didn't want to get too far into the weeds, so I decided just to do the five boroughs of New York for my little study that I did. So, what I found out from doing my research that apparently... They claim that New York has a varying amount of tree cover, depending on who you look at. So what I found was I found a statistic that stated that 44,509 acres of the New York urban area are tree cover. And so that's them based off actual counts of trees. All right, that's fair. So my question was, I don't know exactly how much area there is. So I went through. So in terms of square miles, the Bronx is 42 square miles. Brooklyn is 71 square miles. Manhattan is 23 square miles. Queens is 109 square miles. And Staten Island is 58 square miles for a total of 303 square miles in the five boroughs. Now, if you convert 303 square miles to acres, that is 193,920 acres. Now, bear with me because I know most of you are history people and you don't like numbers. But, so if we compare the amount of green space, which was cited by tree counts as being 44,509 acres, to the overall acreage of the five boroughs, 193,920, we do the math, that comes out to 23% is covered in green. Now, that is either, that is somewhere in the middle, because I saw numbers as low as 13.5 for tree cover for New York, and as high as 39.2 for tree cover. I like my number because it's somewhere in the middle. It seems reasonable to say that 23% of the New York metro area is covered in tree cover. That seems like a reasonable number. It's not crazy high. It's not crazy low. All right. Next step. Let's figure out what percentage of that green space is made up by cemeteries. Now, this is where things got a little bit more difficult. I found a list of New York cemeteries. Now, the problem is if you were, I didn't have a ton of time to do this. I wasn't willing to spend like more than an hour figuring this out. So I went through essentially the cemeteries that right off the bat, they state what their acreage is. Now, I ignored almost everything in Manhattan because for the most part, the stuff in Manhattan is small. You know, you have the marble cemeteries, you have Trinity Churchyard. They're essentially churchyard burial grounds. They are very small. 
The big stuff is what's in the so-called cemetery belt, that loop that extends out through the Bronx and Queens. Queens in particular has a ton of cemeteries. Some of them are very big. You know, you have the really big ones. It seems to be that there was some sort of statement. So if you recall way back episode two or three, talked about the Rural Cemeteries Act and how this kind of pushed cemeteries outside the city. It banned burials in New York, et cetera, et cetera. This is when the cemeteries belt grows, particularly in Queens. So it seems to be like the pretty standard was like 225. There are a bunch of cemeteries that are all 225 acres. Obviously, not every single one I was able to get accurate numbers on. From what I can see, Greenwood is probably the biggest at 478 acres. Um, Calvary comes close. Remember, Calvary is from what we can tell, quote-unquote, the most populated cemetery in the United States. It's got over 3 million burials in four separate sections, totaling 365 acres, give or take. So, like everything else, I don't have an accurate number on exactly how many acres of the New York metro area are covered by cemeteries. Baseline, I figured, from what I could find, was 2,141 acres. Those are the cemeteries off the bat. But that was only about a third, a half to a third of the cemeteries total. So I just went ahead and was generous and I doubled the amount of acres. Because I figured the other half of the cemeteries has to at least double it. So that brings us to 4,282 acres of the New York metro area of the five boroughs of New York that are made up of cemeteries. So if you consider that the green space, and everybody hates me right now, I know this, but you know what? I was just interested and I had to find out. The green space is 44,509 acres and 4,282 minimum of that green space of cemeteries. That means that 10% of all the tree cover in the New York metro area is in cemeteries. Now, is my math a little off? Yes, because it assumes that the entire cemetery is covered with trees. We know that that's not true. But again, I'm kind of fudging the numbers a little bit to make up for the fact that some of the cemeteries weren't accounted for in acreage and things like that. Still, if you consider that even at minimum 10% of the trees in New York City, in the New York metro area, in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island are in cemeteries, that's pretty damn impressive. It really is. And it gives you an idea of just how significant cemeteries are in terms of changing the urban environment. Now, it's interesting because even here in Atlanta, I read a very interesting article that was written by like the Atlanta Parks Commission about the significance of cemeteries in terms of biodiversity, in terms of their trees and things like that. You might say, like, well, why does it matter? Well, I mean, certainly in terms of combating pollution and in terms of preservation, you cannot overstate the significance of cemeteries. You really can't because, you know, trees are scrubbing the air. They are dealing with pollution. They are a big part of actually improving, like, the health quality that you have. But in addition to that, you know, there is a lot of research out there, particularly about urban dwellers, 
that says it's not just about recreation, you know, because obviously with the pandemic, there's been a lot of articles about how people are rediscovering cemeteries and they're walking there and they're running there and they're using them for the same recreational purposes that they did back in the 1830s. But just the presence of urban green space on city dwellers really impacts their health and well-being. People who have regular access to urban spaces experience less stress, lower levels of fear and aggression, and a lower incidence of child asthma than those without such access. So the fact is, like, the same way that during the Industrial Revolution, as the cemeteries, the rural cemetery movement was getting going, people would go there for recreational purposes, they continued to serve that. That's not to say that places like Central Park, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, like that there, there aren't an abundance of urban parks now that also serve that purpose. But in terms of overall scope and scale, they really can't compete with cemeteries. Like cemeteries cover so much more land, particularly in metro areas. The other thing that we discover is that it doesn't necessarily take the giants it doesn't take just greenwood in brooklyn it doesn't take 478 acres to always accomplish that and that's one of the things i actually i was not anticipating about this the fact that there are often kind of like little liminal portions that can make a big difference so for example in one article um the city university of new york found that cemeteries and roadway medians provide what are known as quote-unquote dispersal corridors for native wildlife. Maintaining migration between fragmented populations is a key goal of conservation genetics. Jason Munshee South wrote in his study of gene flow among the white-footed mouse populations in New York City. These mice, he observed, quote, can occupy or move through even the thinnest, most marginable green spaces, such as the edges of cemeteries. This goes back, I have a very distinctive memory of, I was in some biology class, one of those big ones that you take at the beginning of college where you're in a room with 500 other people. And I remember the the final exam, the essay question was talking about migrations of populations. And it was about a certain type of organism that could only live in puddles of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Yes, I clearly went to school in New England. And talking about, you know, the the migration and how you could separate out these two species. And, you know, you often hear about this when they talk about species that, you know, have to diversify because of different conditions. You know, things that are separated by hills or by mountain ranges. Obviously, Darwin's finches are probably the most famous example. The birds that had to adapt to different types of beak shapes based on their food availability. To me, it's very interesting because when you think about these rural cemeteries, they certainly were just as diverse and they had these really kind of interesting landscapes so that you might even have multiple, you know, microbiodiversities within a large cemetery. I already talked about how you might have migratory birds who are coming in and out of the lakes and the water features. You have, you know, your own little, you know, biosphere that's happening, you know, the lichen growth on a wall. All of these things really can develop within the same space and they would not be able to do it otherwise. So overall, it's to me, it's a super interesting question. I think it's something that people are still studying and 
unfortunately, some of what I learned, again, was it's not US-based, but certainly this is something that people around the world are considering. As cities continue to grow, and the fact is these rural cemeteries, which were once rural, no longer are. All of them are completely surrounded. But people continue to adapt in the same way. I know I've probably told this story before, but it's, it's still my weirdest cemetery experience ever. Going through Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. It was a sunny spring afternoon. And I was climbing, you know, there's some, it's very steep. You know, you're over the Schuylkill River. And I was climbing up the steps and I kind of popped my head up over the rise. And I see a couple who has been snaring squirrels and they have killed the squirrel and they are now field dressing it. So there's a pile of, you know, squirrel fur and guts in the grass. And I'm standing there just frozen watching them thinking, wow, this is a big hill. I'm really going to have to hustle to get up it before these hillbillies try to catch me and skin me too. I don't know if they were urban scavengers, if that was their food source, if they were making, you know, some sort of weird stew out of squirrels. Again, weirdest thing that has ever happened to me in a cemetery. And I spent a lot of time in cemeteries. But when you consider the biodiversity, I suppose if you were looking for some place to hunt successfully, you could do a lot worse than a cemetery, particularly in urban areas. One last thing I want to kind of touch on is... You know, I haven't talked a lot about the the physical structures of a cemetery, but I think it's worth noting here. I read one article that talked about how the historic preservation of cemeteries inadvertently also helps to historically preserve landscape. And they gave the example of, you know, one of the largest examples of a certain type of tree in the state is located in a cemetery and it is above the grave of a really significant figure. And the fact that the tree is there and it's linked to that person's grave protects us. And this is something that 100% people definitely tie into. Probably the best example of this is the Arlington Oak, which the John F. Kennedy gravesite at Arlington was designed around this magnificent oak, which unfortunately did die. Um, It was lost. I can't remember if it was Hurricane Sandy. It was lost, I think, like back in 2012. And they actually did plant another oak in its place. But if you see the original renderings when John Carl Warnecke was designing the Kennedy gravesite, they incorporated this in because it was such a central feature. And the entire gravesite was built around it. So the idea that, you know, the presence of significant graves or the presence of a graveyard being a sacred space also helps to protect the landscape, I think is an interesting kind of back and forth. Which brings me to my last thing, which is not exactly the same, but I thought was an interesting tie-in. So the National Zoological Park in Washington, D.C., National Zoo, has kind of a longstanding tradition that they have an extinction graveyard every year. And the extinction graveyard, and the first article I was able to find on this was from 2013. They might have been doing it before that. You know, they listed off some of the species that had gone extinct that year. The, the Raikuyu wood pigeon, which was taken out by hunting and deforestation. The Caucasian wissant, which was taken out by poaching. The slender-billed grackle. That's a bird. I know that's a bird. The other two, it's iffy. Well, the wood pigeon is a bird, too. So I don't know if these are all birds. I don't, I don't know about the wissant. 
Maybe you guys can do some research onto that if you really care. Um, the slender-billed grackle, um, which was in Mexico, had its habitat destroyed. What they do at the National Zoo is that, so like to raise awareness about extinction and the ongoing problem of extinction, they actually created like a graveyard where they have gravestones on display for all of these extinct species, which I don't know if this just just means I really like dessert, but I think of the flavor graveyard. If you've ever been to the Ben and Jerry's factory up in Vermont, they have the flavor graveyard of all of the flavors that they have discontinued. Which it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, and I think that this whole idea at the, you know, the zoo is the same way. But they also put it in this, kind of this way, where they were like, people mourn individuals because they can physically go and see their grave, and it makes them sad, and it reminds them of that. They said, you know, a lot of times with these animals, particularly if it's not an animal you've ever encountered, it's not an animal you may have ever even seen a picture of, you don't know to think about it. You don't know to mourn its loss. And so they were trying to find a way to make it visceral and to make it real for people. So I kind of liked that in terms of tying that to conservation, using the graveyard to raise awareness. And it's something I think even, you know, during the pandemic where they have sort of created either virtual or makeshift graveyards to represent the amount of people who have died from coronavirus. Cemeteries are something that everyone understands. They are a bedrock concept. And while we might experience them in very different ways, and obviously this week was kind of not a normal episode because I'm talking about like a much wider concept, not the physical, well, the physical cemetery itself, but not the graveyard part of the cemetery definitely forces us to kind of like reevaluate and think about things in a very different way. So this one's probably a little on the strange side. Um, I think it's something that people might be interested in, particularly if you are a city dweller, if you have looked at cemeteries and you tried to consider like the importance of them from a natural standpoint. And I think it is important to remember that because so often, you know, there's this push and say that like, well, all of that open land could be something. We could redevelop it. You know, we have a need for housing. We have a need for X, Y, and Z. But also we tend to forget that we do have a need for green space and the importance of green space in terms of not only quality of life and health, but just in terms of keeping our cities clean and scrubbing the air and having the presence of, you know, oxygen. Crazy concept. But, you know, what they were doing in the 1830s, it's, there's still a need for it today. So in terms of green space in the urban environment, cemeteries are in many ways continuing the battle that, you know, Jacob Bigelow and the Massachusetts Horticultural Society, all of these kind of urban reformers in the 1830s started more than 150 years ago. It's still an ongoing fight today. As always, if you are enjoying, please, 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 I would love for you to leave a five-star rating and review. It does help me be much more visible out there to those who are looking for lots of wonderful cemetery stories. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, ideas for episodes, you can always get a hold of me at Podcast at gmail.com. Follow along on social media, Tomb of the View Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Lots of extra goodies going up there. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.